image and likeness. Why? Simply in order that through his, uh, sorry, through this gift of God-likeness in themselves, they may be able to perceive the image absolute that is the word himself. And there's a dashing image of Athanasius there, which I'm sure looks nothing like him. Um, What Athanasius understood, and I agree with him, is that the existence of mankind as a whole has a purpose And that purpose is being able to see God. Remember on Sunday we asked the question of why is this all so important? You have eternal life uh, that you cannot lose, uh, that God cannot make you fear losing eternal life or losing your salvation. And we asked, you know, why would I be so propelled to learn and grow in grace and knowledge and to actually... Uh, come to know God more and more, and resist that which takes uh, my eyes off of God. And I think you see it here, and it's quite simple, that you and I have been made in God's image. As born-again believers, we're made in Christ's image as absolutely new creatures. And God has given to us his Son and the Holy Spirit. They indwell us. And in the church, he has given us a brand new life by which we can actually see God in the way that Moses and the prophets and uh, no one else could. That we can walk with him and be in his presence. Think about what you'll see. Now, if that's what you want, you get more and more of that every day. Seeing him more, your faith, as we see in our passage, your faith will increase, your love will increase, your hope will increase. When it comes to material things, getting them to increase, like getting more money, well, there's a lot of factors at play that we can't control. Some people get that. A lot of people don't. But when it comes to knowing more and more of God, that's guaranteed if you want it. And think about what you're going to see. God Almighty. People who pursue false things because they'll give them certain fleshly excitement or fleshly feelings or mental excitement. Uh, They're not pursuing God, and those things are fleeting. Not to mention, the more you pursue feeling good, the more you need, and the more you destroy your soul and your body. God has designed it that way. So what kind of feeling and excitement do you think you'll get when you see the Almighty God? What kind of life do you think you'll have when you see him more and more every day? And that's what we're going to look at today, as Paul does in 2 Thessalonians. But we're going to start in Philippians 3. Let's open up in prayer. Let's thank God for our opportunity to hear his word and to be enlightened by learning more and more. As we learn more, our faith increases. As our faith increases, our walk with God increases. It gets closer and the more we see of him. So it's of vital importance that as we turn to God's word that we're humble and that we're able to learn knowing that we don't know it all about anything. And so we're always ready to learn. With that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for Your word and for this life, your word that reveals this life. Your word is sufficient. We need not go anywhere else to find this life. There's no searching anywhere else. There's no secret 
talisman or secret journey that someone must take to some mountaintop to find you. You are in your word. You are the word. And so, Father, as we turn to your word, we long to see what you have done in this age. And what you've done in this age is preempted by the age to come. As we see in our passage, you promise us the return of our Lord and our King. And when he returns, he will judge. We're talking here about the second coming. And when he comes again, he will judge the earth. Therefore, though it seems like the enemy may be winning at times, he never is. Because you and you alone are the final judge. May we live and walk in a manner that pleases you. So that we can enjoy your presence. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the, the age of, that we're in is a mystery. It's called that all throughout the New Testament. It's called that by our Lord himself. In his, and in Matthew 13 and in other passages in the gospel. Where the Lord uses parables to reveal an age of mystery. And in that age of mystery... As we see in, for instance, in Matthew 13, it goes the whole span from his first advent to his second advent. And that includes the tribulational period, which is not for the church, but for Israel. And so we have this whole age, an age that is interjected, inserted into the age of Israel, which age came, uh, was halted or interrupted without the promises being fulfilled, the promises being the covenants. And part of that span of time is the church. And so you must, hopefully you can see this, that when Jesus is talking about an age, he's talking about everything that's going on in it, meaning believer, unbeliever, good things, bad things. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on. But within that age, there's another mystery, And that mystery is the church. And in the church, God would bring mankind into his own presence apart from death. Now, in the Old Testament, if you remember all those times where anybody saw God or they saw a theophany, like, for instance, Gideon or uh, Samson's parents saw God, um, uh, when Abraham saw God, Jacob saw God, They were like, oh, I've seen God, I'm going to die. They were sure that they would, which they didn't. Uh, But then God, and for instance, and including in that is Moses, who asked to see God's glory, and God says, you can't see my face lest you die. And so the Old Testament saints understood that when you died, you went into the presence of God. But now... You and I go into the presence of God without dying. You see that. It's a completely new thing. How is it that we can be in the presence of God before we die? And yet God has made it this way for us in this age. And so as we we further read, for instance, especially in Paul's letters, that through the cross of Christ we have died. But it's not a physical death. It was a spiritual death. We died with him and were resurrected with him. With him we're raised again. Raised together. Uh, well, as, as he says in Ephesians 2, made alive together, raised together, seated together in the heavens with Christ. And this is true for everybody, all who believe, Jew, Gentile, male, female, all saints, all priests, all in the presence of God without having to die first. 
That means, and we've said it all the time, but it's hard to wrap our minds around, that I'm in heaven now. Paul writes it in Ephesians 2 as if it's an already foregone fact. You are raised together with him. Uh, But I'm not there yet. And so God has brought us into his presence without killing us. We don't die. And so as we live this life, we live in the presence of God. And this is you know, one of the many aspects of this age and this life that has been given to every believer in this age. That you and I get to walk in the presence of God every day. And when we do so, now think about this. If I'm walking in the presence of God every day, can't I learn more of God every day? Can't my faith increase every day? Can't my love increase every day? And the answer is yeah. And so if those are the things that I truly want, then it's guaranteed. And my life, despite, as we see here with the Thessalonians, despite all the pressures and tribulations and sufferings that come upon us in this life, and the temptations that try to stop us from grabbing hold of that life, we actually know, we know for a fact that we're in the presence of God because the Word of God tells us this. And actually, the Holy Spirit in us bears witness of this very fact, and so we understand through the Spirit that this is a reality, that I walk in His presence. It's when we forget this that we get morose, mundane, depressed, isolated, um, and life loses all its fun, all its light and life. We forget. We forget. We think we look at ourselves as the old self. We look at the world. The world is this is our home, and it's gray, and it's awful, and there's evil, and there's suffering. We get our eyes off of the Lord, whose presence we live. And this is what Paul, you know, is in so many cases in his letters, but here impressing upon the Thessalonians that, look, this one whose presence that you're in is coming back. And all of those people, it looks like they're getting away with it. It looks like they're, they're having a grand old time persecuting you and mocking you. Just know that they're going to be judged. So you should pity them, not fear them. You shouldn't be anxious toward them either. When people, when we, we're in situations that are difficult, we tend to get anxious and stressed out. And yet, if you're in the presence of God, what in the world are you stressed about? I know the same thing. I get stressed about stuff, but I forget. It's when I'm, I'm, my eyes are on the situation and not on whose presence I live. Look at Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And so what we have here is our home, right? Our home is citizenship, and that means that that's our home. Our home is heaven, not earth. And that... From heaven, our Savior who sits there now, he's coming back. And when he comes back, he will give us a new body. This would seem a reference to the rapture, although Paul doesn't make distinctions. And we'll see that as we uh, 
Meaning that Paul doesn't go out of his way to say, okay, don't confuse this with the second coming. This is a rapture, okay? He doesn't do that. Never does that. Um, We do that. (laughs) And sometimes we get it wrong. But really what you're after here is what is the author trying to tell you? What is Paul, what is his message conveying to you? Not that you argue with others about whether this is the second coming or the rapture, but that you understand that the Lord is coming back and that you're going to have a new body and that you're a citizen of heaven. And so why in the world aren't you rejoicing in life? That's what he says in chapter 4. Rejoice, I say again, rejoice. Why aren't we? It's because we're forgetful. God has a program for human history. This is something that we're going to look at coming up. I I keep saying coming up because I'm preparing it. And I'm probably for the first time preparing it on my own. So look out for all the errors that will be in it. (laughs) But I I want to understand the dispensations for myself from the scripture. And so I'm spending uh, quite a bit of time coming to understand it myself from the scripture. I mean, I could just take some dispensationalist work and just regurgitate it for you, but I don't want to do that. Um, and, and even though it, it's it's all been done, but I want us to understand it on our own. And <clears throat> to understand that there are ages. you know. And some say there's five, and some say there's seven, and some say there's six, and the Jews always believed in two. They're very simple. And it, however many you determine are ages, in each age, God has a different procedure or program for the human race. For instance, Israel. Uh, And once Israel rejected their Messiah, which Jesus understood that they did in Matthew chapter 12, that's when he starts talking about a mystery age in Matthew chapter 13. And in this age, a mystery age, we actually have a couple of ages within that age, which is the church and the tribulation. But what we also see is that through all the ages, from the fall to now, to the future, to the millennial reign, to the final judgment, and into eternity, that every age is centered on Christ. Because the ages are about humanity. They're not about the angels. They're about us. They're about humanity. And the God-man, the human, who is God, is the center of every age. In this age, he indwells us. Talk about being at the center. He indwells our very bodies. And every believer sits with him in the heavens. And so, what do we have? It tickles me to death because this, this you carry with you everywhere. It doesn't matter. Who can take it away from you? Who can diminish it? Only you forget to look at it. Only you and I can forget to see it. But in this age, we walk in the presence of God without dying first. I Sarah got, you know, it seems pretty obvious. This is something that you know, people have known for eons. But it's, I saw somebody write that. I read this the, a couple of days ago, and it just struck me. In the presence of heaven without dying. You know, it's kind of like an Enoch, right? Enoch gets lifted up. He gets... A, a, or Elijah, you know, Elijah gets in the chariot and away he goes. Now, we didn't experience you no know, chariot. 
by faith in Christ. And then the word of God tells us that this is true. So this life in the presence of God is consistent with some things that mankind must have in the presence of God, which is, and I just use these basic three, there's more, but faith, hope, and love. Paul uses them in 1 Corinthians 13 and in other passages. And here in our passage, so go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. And this was a mystery in the past because, as we've said, this age is inserted and in this age we would have people on the earth possessing eternal life which, by the way, as Christ said in John 17 in his prayer, eternal life is the knowledge of the Father, and that we would have the knowledge of the Father, we would have the knowledge of the Son, and be able to actually see them and walk with them and live with them, even though we don't physically see them, but spiritually we do. And each of us has to discover that by faith. And look, if it were a lie, there would be a bunch of people who have tried to discover it and say, well, you know... It, it doesn't, it's not there. There'd be more people who would say it's not there than people who would say that it was. But over and over throughout church history, even now, even in you, I'm sure you can know if, that you walk with God in his presence, having not seen him, felt him, touched him, heard him. But you know that you have done all of those things and continue to do so. So this life uh, in God's presence is a constant increase. You know, and this is a word, this is another word I want to focus on today, is the word increase. That what I know yesterday or today is going to be not as much as I know tomorrow. How much I love today is not going to be as much as I love tomorrow. Or we'll say next week or next month. Because you know, growth takes time. But... Uh, it's a consistent increase. And as I said at the front, everybody wants more stuff. Everybody wants new stuff. And I've got an adorable little, almost six years old at home, and it's amazing to see that now that I'm older. I've already forgotten my other daughter had done this 30 years, almost 30 years ago. But now, you know, I see it. You can get her stuff and get her stuff, and then they want more stuff. It's just the human race. Right, here's all this new shiny stuff. All right, great. It's awesome. What else you got? You know, that's us. We want more stuff. <laughs> and God is offering more stuff. But it's more of him. And amazingly, the Christian community will go, oh, yeah, more of him. Yawn. I still want more stuff. And honestly, we think that more of almighty God is not going to be as good as more stuff. How can we possibly think that? More of him. And that's what he says here. He gives thanks to them for this. Look at First, Second Thessalonians 1.3. We've seen it many times. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged. It's a very powerful word, this Greek word for greatly enlarged, and it actually refers to an agricultural, uh, its, its origin is agriculture. And it's from the, the, the energy within a plant that causes it to continue to grow. Imagine your faith, this continues to grow 
Always. I mean, do you ever get to a point where it's like, I'm all done with faith, moving on? No, none of us do. Can I say that? I have all faith. I don't need any more. Never. And so we're our faith, and he says to them, your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you towards one another grows even greater. There it is again, grows even greater. That word means to superabound. It grows even greater is good. Was that me? Nope, my volume's off. Grows even greater is superabound. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions with which you endure. Notice their faith is increasing and their love is superabounding even in the midst of persecution and affliction. Which persecution and affliction Paul faced. Remember, if we, we saw that on Sunday that Paul uses the same word for himself. And all of us face this. We must face it. And that is because in this world, as God has planted beautiful, luscious gardens, which are us, out of spite and hate, Satan and the kingdom of darkness are trying to get us not to increase. They can't stop us from being saved, so we're saved. I think they understand that. I don't know what they understand. and Frankly, I don't care. But what they do do uh, is to try and stop our increase. Right? Get you to stand still. Get your pride. What they, they love to use the pride button. I already know that. Oh, yeah, I know that. What do you know? What do I know concerning infinite, almighty God? Nothing. We know more than we did, sure. But we know little. But we can know more tomorrow, the next day, and the next day. So their faith has increased, as has their love, and their faith has endured, meaning that they remain faithful to God's word and to God. And this does mean obedience, by the way. You can't skirt that one. If my faith is going to increase and my love is going to increase, I have to be obedient to the will of God. And when you are, despite the pressure to abandon your faith and your love and to stop increasing in it, you actually will find yourself having great momentum. So the new life in Christ means an exceeding growth of faith. A new life means that we're always learning and our faith is always increasing. We're God's crop and we never stop growing. Do you realize what kind of life that is? You never stop learning more of God. You never stop in increasing in your faith, all in the presence of God. So this is a life where you're always a student. As a student, you never stop increasing your learning. And what is a good student? A good student is always curious. A good student wants to learn. You know, there are, I had plenty of students in high school who got straight A's, and then uh, the next year when I talked to them about what did they remember from chemistry, I taught chemistry class, I said, what did they remember? They'd be like, nothing, nothing. All right? they, just, they just pursued the tests. They got their A's and they moved on because they wanted to go to college with all their A's and then get a degree with all their A's and more A's and A's and A's. Great, you have the A's, but what have you really learned? 
a good student. And, you know, you're not going to get to know God unless you're a good student of his word. A good student wants to know. A good student is curious. A bad student says, I already know that. A bad student hears something different than what he has believed and says, ah, that's wrong. Now, it might be wrong. I'm not saying it might not. Be. It might be wrong, absolutely. But a good student says, well, let me investigate that and see if there's anything to it. I heard of uh, there, one of my professors at Corbin told me that uh, there was a group of people who went over to Germany in the um, in the 30s, 20s and 30s in Germany, uh, a whole bunch of liberal theology was being taught. And it was terrible. It's actually infected the whole West, not just the theology, but the soci- sociology and all of that. It came from that place, and all the progressivism. And it entered theology. And he said some people bought into it and they became terrible theologians. But some of them went over there and learned the wrong stuff and they became better. Because they learn, they had to, right? They're there at some university in Germany, and they have to sit there and learn this stuff. Instead of just, a, uh, you know, eating it, they said, "Well, let's find the truth in the Word of God that refutes it." And they did, and they became better. We can learn from any any situation. Always learning. But, and you have to realize that we do, if you're in the present, this again is in the presence of God, that we're learning more and more, we realize that we have to be humble. If you're not humble, your journey of discovery ends. You will not find more. The phrase, oh, I know that, should never cross your mind. It's more like, I know something about that, and I'd love to know more. It's a life of constant discovery. It's a life of wonder. A good student is always wondering at the good things that he's learning. For us, it's learning about God. And where we learn about him is here. Like right now, I'm doing a study on 1 Samuel. I'm learning about Saul and Samuel and at first Hannah. And I'm starting to look at them in light of the whole of Scripture, like this whole program of God through the ages why do you have a guy like Saul and a guy like David as the first and second king of Israel? It's fascinating. That's not just knowing about, all right, Saul did this and David did that. In the scripture, it's the narrative is recorded in a certain way that we'll learn things about God. And, you know, if we just look at it as like it's just a history book that i got to memorize to get an A on a test, then you're not going to learn anything. But if you say, what is it about Saul that God wants me to know that I know more about God? What is it about David and all the others and Samuel? They're all flawed. Even Samuel. Samuel's a great, the first of the prophets, we would say, and great, great man of God. Flawed. Had his flaws. Same with all of them. So, a life where you're constantly a student. Uh, the scripture that I just held up has cover, has a covers, two covers, in case you're wondering. And uh, I'm sorry, I had, uh, the, I'm, I'm thinking about something funny that I read today about our, anyway, sorry. It's a, it's a politician and I shouldn't say anything. It's a pulpit's no place to be making fun of politicians. 
But they're not too bright, some of them. Let's just put it that way. The Scripture has a finite number of words. Right? You read it cover to cover. If you, maybe you did the Bible reading with us, and you did. And do you know it all? Like you go, if, if, you, if you did the Bible reading a second year, you'd be like, well, I didn't read that before. It's all new. It's because God can make his word infinite, though it has a finite number of words. It is infinite. We could never get to the bottom of it. Now think of the many in the world who have stopped learning. There's plenty of those people around. The people in the world who have stopped learning, they stopped learning years ago, probably after high school or college if they went. And they're approaching middle age, or they are middle age. And what do they take into their souls? TV and social media every day. They learn nothing. They take in a lot of news. What do you learn from the news? Nothing. Even if you're hearing stuff that is true, to get anything of worthwhile out of it, you'd have to research it. So, they have souls, not souls, souls that stop learning. And if your soul stops learning important things, it atrophies and it hardens. And the more you let it harden, the harder it is to learn. For people like this, if they're told something about God from, say, a Christian who's evangelizing them or sharing the truth with them, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that, I know that. They don't know a thing about it, but they don't, you see, they put their walls up and they don't want to learn anymore because it's challenging. But when it comes to Christians in this very same situation, the sticking point is pride. And I've seen this, and I've seen it in myself, sadly. That a sticking point would really truly be stuck in the mud because of your pride. In some cases, Christians have stopped learning. Even though they're hearing the Bible or they're reading the Bible, they've stopped learning because they, in their own minds, know everything there is to know about a certain subject or maybe the whole subject. And why do people do this? And so that you can tell yourself and others that you know it all. What if you're, you're the one that people go to for answers? You know, that, and that can be a good thing if you're humble, but it also can be a very dangerous thing. Pride. I know that. I don't need to know anymore. I know it all. Especially when it comes to the subject we're going to approach, eschatology. It's, uh, and it's so vague in many ways. And you know me, I'm only going to take what the Scripture says. I'm not going to inject what I think it means. I'm not. So I'm going to, I'm going to put it out there, and if you want to make your own conclusions about things, then you're more than welcome to. But just know that if whatever you're trying to piece together, if God hasn't revealed it, what you're piecing together is going to have some flaw in it because you're using a human rationality, human reason, and that has no place in God's revelation. And so, what are we to do? We just continue to learn. And with humility, we, we walk in our knowledge, longing for more. About the very same things that we know, we long for more. About a favorite passage, we long for more. Long for it. You know, we are God's luscious garden in a growing 
growing in a dark world. And that's what, you know, what, what is your knowledge for, by the way? That's an excellent question. You know, what it, why am I learning all of this Bible? What is the point of it? And the point is to walk with Christ. The point is to be like Christ. There's no other point to it. That's what it's exactly for, to be like him. So if my learning is not making me more like him, I am, and you should evaluate yourself on this because you could go decades continuing to hear and learn and you're not changing at all in the image of Christ. You're not growing in faith. You're not growing in love. And you're wasting your time. And you should know that. Because a lot of years can go by and wasted time. We're to use our knowledge to walk with Christ, to be like him. God's luscious garden in a dark world. One of the things that struck me when I uh, <clears throat> listened to the book about the Apollo missions, in Apollo 8 and Apollo, Apollo 11, especially Apollo 8, Apollo 8, they saw the earth for the first time from the moon. They orbited the moon something like 15 times or whatever. And every time they went around, of course, here comes the earth, right? The earth rises in front of their window and what struck them greatly about the earth was its color. Everything out there is dark and black. And, you know, the, the moon is blackish gray. And as I said, it, it has, the moon had its own beauty in its own way. But the earth, it just hung there like a jewel. You know, this blue, this bright, brilliant blue. And that's what we're to be like in a dark universe, in a dark world. We are the light of the world. We're, as Christ said, a city on a hill, which we shine forth the light of Christ to the world. That's what our knowledge is for. And so it must increase. Now, what's more is, besides a growth in faith, there's a growth of love. And as he says here again in verse 3, that your love for one another... Get it right because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you towards one another grows even greater or superabounds. Now, this is exactly what Paul exhorted them to, to do. If you go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, uh, look at verse 1, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instructions in how you ought to walk and please God, and he says, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of God, by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So he says to them, look, we, re we taught you how to walk with the Lord, and we bid you, exhort you to excel still more at it, even though you do walk with the Lord. It has to increase. So the Christian life, this new life, eternal life in each of us, is a life of increase. Go down to verse 9. Now, as to, love, to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And that, what Paul there means is not that they don't need instruction, but that Paul had already taught them. So he had taught them this, and God was reaffirming what Paul taught. But he says to them in verse 10, For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And now, so this more, excel more, in what? In the manner that you walk, 
and in the love that you have? And <clears throat> do we see these as burdens or discovery? Now, because to have more faith is to see more of God. To have more love is to see more of God. Do we see them as amazing discovery or do we see them as burdens? That, oh, I've got to love him and, oh, I've got to have faith in that and I've got to strive every day to follow the will of God. It just sounds so burdensome. And for a lot of people it is. And why is it? It's because they, at their heart's desire, they want to do something else. They want something else. And I, me personally, I don't know what makes a person want the flesh over God, even as a believer. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know why I wanted it when I wanted it. Uh, the, the corruption and apostasy of mankind is, is unfathomable to the rational mind. But <clears throat> at least we should know, right, that this is a life of increase. And as a life of increase every day, is more and more of the Lord. So, go back to 2 Thessalonians 1.3. So, we have we looked at faith increasing, which means knowledge increasing. It means that I'm a student. I'm always a great student, curious, wondrous, uh, amazed and longing to find out more and more of what's in God's Word. And then, love. So, he says in verse 3, the B part, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. The increase of agape love. What would that do for you? It would mean that all your relationships are constantly changing for the better. Now, that doesn't mean that the people you're loving are going to respond to you just because you love more. It doesn't mean that. It means for you that the relationships that you have with the people that you're closest to all the way down to your enemies who want you to die, I guess, uh, are increasing. The love increases. This means that your relationship with others will forever increase in intimacy, understanding, graciousness, sharing, serving, forgiving, supporting, encouraging, enduring, and on and on the list goes. You know, and for some people, it's very difficult for us. You think God doesn't put those people in your life on purpose? Oh, they're very much there on purpose. And he, you know, if you're a student of the Word of God, you go to the Word of God and you hear points like this, or when we studied agape love and you go, do you love them? That's what really God is saying to you. Do you love them like I love them? And I say, well, you're God. Of course I don't love them like you love them. God said, don't you walk in my presence? Are you not in my presence? Do I not indwell you? And this is all very true. How about your relationship with your enemies? If your faith increases, sorry, faith and love increases, but if your love increases, less stress. As they persecute you, as they try to jab you, as they try to make you miserable, as they try to take from you, as they're... Just, I don't know, vicious toward you, and, and people are. Less stress, less anxiety, more praying for them, more giving, more longing to see their eyes open. And it really means more peace in my soul, even from enemies. 
And so this is the life of increase. It is in the presence of God. Where, uh, <clears throat> and so this is what our lives are to be. Increase in love always. You know, um, you're going to love a whole lot more than you did years ago. You're going to be a different person. Some people see it. Some people won't. It doesn't matter what they do, if they do or they don't. But what, think about the world that doesn't love. And there's a whole lot that don't. Now, And God puts them in front of us as an example. Just like God puts Israel for us on the pages of Scripture as an example. Meaning, not just Jews, and, but mankind in general. The, the Israel who rejected God and rejected faith and worshipped idols just behaving like any in the human race who do the same thing. Their, their um, ethnic uh, origin doesn't matter. But we look around us all the time and we see people who don't love. And we shake our heads. And, you know, and it's got to come to a point where you're, you pity them. No, it's right there in front of them. What God has given us is low-hanging fruit. You just grab it. Anybody can, uh, as it is in Second Timothy chapter 3. I just gave you a part of it on the board, but I'll read the whole thing. In verses 1 through 5, Paul says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And I could barely get it out in a breath. Wow. And Jesus told us that the apostasy would increase in this age. And it's going to reach ahead when, the, as we'll see in Second Thessalonians chapter two, Paul's going to tell us about this man of lawlessness who we come to know as the beast, the abomination of desolation, who rises up above and says that he's greater than all gods and greater than God Himself, and he plants himself in the temple and he causes. And it's really when this whole what you just see here reaches its pinnacle on the earth. It's a time, and Jeremiah 30 calls it the time of Jer- Jacob's trouble. It's the time that God is going to deal finally with Israel's sin, and it is horrible. The, tribula- the great tribulation. But we see this all around us now. And so, if you are in a room full of these kinds of people, or they're all over your house, you ever lived with people that you never want to live with and you just hated going home? I, I had a periods of that. I'd, I longed not to go home. I'd find any excuse not to go home because it was just awful. Just awful. People are awful. But, you know, I, I'm awful. I, have been, I, am, I am no sinless person up here. I have been as awful as anybody. But if, as a new creature in Christ, walking and living in the presence of God, knowing that your faith and your love and your hope is going to increase day by day, how do you look at these people now, more and more so every day, longing for God to smash them? I hear a lot of that from Christians. Can't wait for God to smash the heck out of them. 
Or do you long for their souls? See, what God is teaching us is to long for their souls. To be a light unto Him. Who's going to judge them? Not you. Take that off your plate. Take that burden off your shoulders. It's when the Lord returns, they will all be judged. Now, in verse 5 in this passage, it says that they hold to a form of godliness, which means that they have a religion. You imagine. They hate. They don't love. They love pleasure rather than self. And they have religion. They have nothing. So, therefore, our life, the new life in Christ, should be a life of increase. Not the increase of wealth and possessions, but faith hope, and love. That is our increase. And you can have it every day. Every day. Pray about it. Many of us say, I ain't got time for pray. I ain't got time to pray. And you don't want that. Just admit it to yourself. You don't want it. You want something else. I say, I, I, I don't have time to hear God's Word and to truly concentrate on it and to learn it, to investigate it. Why? Do you need a pastor for that? You don't, by the way. You have the Holy Spirit within you. The pastor is given to the church to do all the work that you don't have the time to do, but it doesn't mean that you can't do some of the work and learn what's in your scripture and be curious about it and wonder about it and learn about it. It doesn't mean that you can't. Any believer can. In my estimation, the gift of pastor-teacher is a gift to someone who truly desires to spend a lot of hours alone in God's Word doing a whole bunch of work uh, in that. And it doesn't wear them out or tire them out. And I, and I should say, because someone told me once that if you don't do it immediately, you don't have the gift. <laughs> it is not true. Every gift must be developed. So the first, I, I said, I might have the gift of pastor teacher. This is many years ago. My first wife was still alive. So I put out a theological book. I put it down in front of me. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to read some theology. And I was asleep in five minutes drooling on that book. My head was on I swear to God, I'm not even using a euphemism there. I fell asleep right on top of the book. So I asked somebody who was a pastor. And he said, no, you don't have the gift of pastor teacher. That was a lie. It has to be developed, like everything. Every spiritual gift has to be developed. And if you pursue something and then the doors close, then you know. But you've got to pursue it. Every one of us has to train our hearts to be spiritual. How many times do we read the, the words that are used in the New Testament that are diligence and reaching ahead and groping and, and uh, pursuing Study to make yourself approved unto God, a workman that need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. Or is it 1 Timothy? It's one of the Timothys. So, a life should be a life of increase. Yeah, I, I truly think for a lot of Christians, it's not a pursuit. It's a, you know, if it's convenient, I'll do it. But it's not a pursuit. You've got to ask yourself, what do you pursue? What is it that you're really after? Is it a chemical? Is it sex? Is it drugs? Is it alcohol? Is it uh, status? Is it entertainment? Is it just doing nothing? There's a lot of people just want that. They just want to, uh, please, if I could have a life where I could just do nothing. Is that what you want? 
We have to ask it. All of us as believers have to be honest with ourselves because decades can go by. And without your honesty between you and God, this life of increase, you've missed it. It's meant to be pursued. And you know why you pursue it is because God reveals himself. So I was thinking earlier today, imagine you know, some people read the word of God and they hear the voice of God. I don't know why. But the word of God is God's voice. Can you imagine hearing God's voice? Like really hearing it. The pitch, the tone, the rhythm, the depth of it. Wouldn't it be absorbing? You know, would it be some whiny voice that you're like, oh, God, stop, you know? (laughs) Or some nasally voice, you're like, oh, it grates in my ears, right? It's like nails on a chalkboard. Ah, it'd be rich and lovely. And like, you'd say, God, never stop talking, please. Some people, when they read the Word of God, that's what they hear. Some people, when they read the Word of God, they don't hear that at all. And it's just words on it's just ink on a page. And I don't understand the difference. I do understand also that I would say to anybody who, you you know, if you're if you've begun to learn the Word of God, that what I'm just talking about is developed. But there's some, it's developed. You have to spend time walking with God to get to know him. It makes sense, no. And so to, to walk with God, to get to know him, is something that those who do it do so because they've seen God. They've seen him. Like one, one day, the day that Jesus, uh, in John 6, he's, they're on the shore of Galilee, and he gives this huge, this great message. It's an amazing message. It's after he fed the 5,000. It's the next day or the day after. And he's given this amazing message. And he says to the crowd, he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no place with me. And the people are like, who's this guy, a vampire? What, what, what does he mean by this? And a lot of people leave. They didn't understand a word that he said. He meant communion. I personally think he meant the communion elements. And uh, many left. And then he turned to the disciples and said, are you going to leave too? And Peter said, we will. And Peter, one of his great, he doesn't have too many of these. So, you know, you've got to give kudos to him that he said something absolutely brilliant and perfect. He said, you have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? Like Peter didn't understand a word that he said either about eat his flesh and drink his blood. They didn't know what he was talking about. But they knew him. They saw him. And therefore they said to themselves, these are words of eternal life. We'll understand them someday. So we've got to keep going. We've got to keep pursuing. Now we also have to understand that this is not going to be easy. It's not easy. Or it wasn't easy for the Thessalonians either. Uh, why, as I explained before, I've explained a couple of times, the Thessalonians, when they became Christians, they lived in a community that worshipped false gods like, like people check Facebook in our day and age. You know, at, <clears throat> I mean, Facebook can be to some people a false god. But in, in every event, athletic event, 
family party, uh, community event. It was always a sacrifice to false gods. And so the Christians in Thessalonica had to not go. They made the choice to abandon those things. And by doing so, they had to abandon those who practiced those things. Not abandon them. They gave them the gospel and stuff. But they weren't the same people. And neither are any Christian. Anyone who becomes a believer is not the same. And so they were persecuted greatly. And Satan turns this up. He knows especially when you're starting to become the believer who longs to walk in God's presence. He can see that, and he's going to bring stuff in your life that's going to stop your increase. He's going to bring stuff. And why? I mean, probably the best passage about Satan that I can think of is when Jesus speaks of him in John 8 and just says he was a liar and a, hate and a murderer from the beginning. From the beginning, he's a liar and a murderer. What does that mean? I, you know, none of us understand the fall of Satan, but <clears throat> it would say through, or it would seem, through pure hate and malice, Satan wants to stop the increase of your harvest. And he's going to bring it, and God's going to allow him to. And so where you have areas in your life that it's very hard to deal with that thing, Satan's going to bring it. And God's going to let him. Because God has made in you and me a new life that is far more powerful than anything Satan can throw at us. So God is going to allow us. Our whole lives are based on various tests that God is going to bring to us, trials that are meant to give us strength. Increase our faith, increase our endurance, increase our hope, and increase our love. And so God is helping us in those things. He's not hurting us. If we can remember that, and I know at times it's hard to, but um, if, if you blew up in anger at someone or something, and then you're like, oh, wow, I shouldn't have done that. And then that, that thing is still there, that person is still there. As the te- and in other words, the test continues to go on. You have every opportunity to change, to change your system of thinking and to do it right. And then reap the benefits of that, which is going to be increased faith, increased love, increased hope, and a closer walk with God in his presence. Your whole life will become one that's in his presence. Wherever you wake up in the morning, that sounds terrible, I shouldn't, it's, you know. Not that you're waking up in various places every day. But, you know, wherever you are, wherever you go, whatever you're forced to go. I remember the Lord said to Peter, you're going to be, you're, going to, you're used to girding yourself up in John 21. And he said, you're going to be taken and you're going to be forced to go to a place you don't want to go. And, and he said to him, look, teach my lambs, teach my sheep. Those things were for Peter's benefit, just like the thorn in the flesh was for Paul. It's like all of us face all of our trials. They are for us to put faith into practice. And by doing so, we see more and more God's presence. Walking in his presence everywhere, every day, always, no matter what happens. And when all of those people are all around you, those folks, and they want to suck that life out of you. You say, uh-uh-uh. I'm in the presence of God. 
And then you actually start thinking to yourself, what could I do to open their eyes? What words could I say? Rather than thinking about, how could I get revenge in them and beat them, to a, beat them down? No, I say, well, how can I break through the darkness that's in their soul and shine the light of Christ? What words? What actions? What thoughts? What prayers? And you can't. That is a life of increase. Not a life of stagnation. A life of increase. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. And thank you that you guide us in the spiritual life by means of truth, by means of the Holy Spirit within. We owe all things to you. All instruction is from you. All truth is from you. All life is from you. May we, Father, in humility become great students of your will and your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.